1: Hi, I'm Zach Glazer.
2: And I'm Stephanie Everett, and this is episode 360 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, I'm talking with Sherry Deutschman about leading your team with empathy.
1: Today's podcast is brought to you by rankings.io, Text Expander, and Letera. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so stay tuned and we'll tell you more about them later on. So,
2: Zach, the holiday season is here. It's Among Us. And I don't know if your people are like me, they are, have not started any kind of shopping yet.
1: (laughs) No, I have had a tradition with my father since I was little to do most of our shopping on Christmas Eve.
2: And I guess if you're going to a physical store, that will work. But it Mm -hmm. occurred to me that I've gotten a little spoiled by the delivery abilities of places and that might not exist this year. So I'm like, I actually probably should be planning ahead.
1: Probably need to, yeah, do, do a little bit more, but I, As I've gotten older, I've just kind of gone towards gift cards or something where it's, you know, if I can't find it in the store the day before, I'll just get them a gift card.
2: Yeah. And, you know, this time of year, most people are also thinking about gifts to clients or vendors or special partners, you know, referral partners that you work with. And for sure, the gift card is an easy way out. But I've been really (laughs) impressed. I mean, it is.
1: Oh, it's definitely a cop out. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Maybe not the most personal gift. And so I've really enjoyed, um, I got an email recently um, from a vendor and it was like, you've been given this gift and go to this website and pick out which cookies or candy you want and then we'll ship it to you. And it was kind of fun and still felt a little personal, but I got to kind of pick which of the sweets I wanted because flavored popcorn was an option. And as much as I love popcorn, it's actually one of my favorites. Like don't do anything to it. Just keep it pure, right. butter, movie theater, butter. Right. People, I don't know what they do to that
3: weird rainbow popcorn.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know either. And I think that people should just be popcorn purists. That's where I stand. You know, I like that. It's a little bit more personal. You know, they've picked something that they, they think you're going to like, but yet you get, to, you get to make choices. Not everybody likes the exact same thing, but there's a good way of going about doing that. And I think that's kind of a neat little trend that's going on right now.
2: Yeah. And we kind of did something similar with our team. Mm-hmm. We usually last year, we got everybody the same thing. And this year we were like, oh, do we try to get individual gifts? And so we came up with about nine things in, the, in a similar price range that we thought were things that our team might enjoy, but wouldn't otherwise purchase for themselves. And we mm-hmm. put together a cute little gift guide and then um, we presented it to you guys this week. And we're like with some fun and jolly. And that was cute. And then we were like, okay, now pick what you want. And, and it's kind of been fun to have this catalog. And I don't know about you, if but I've like switched what I want like three times. So I just needed to decide.
1: I had to just close it. I had to just, you know, send my offer to page and and just move on because yeah, it, there were many things that I, I would have been very happy with and, and would have been a great gift, but just kind of had to choose one. And I thought it was a very neat way to do it. I was excited about it. So it, it was fun.
2: Yeah, I think it makes it fun, personalized, but also kind of takes a little bit of the stress out of the holidays. Like I'm stressed enough as it is without trying to come up with <laughs> the perfect gift for every single person on our team.
1: Yeah. Well, so I, you know, when I was running my practice, I used to actually go to downtown Nashville, go by the Google cluster store mm. and go get just boxes and boxes of Google clusters and send boxes out to, to clients. But those are, if you're not familiar with what goo, goo clusters are, they're basically nuts and caramel and chocolate around that. And it's very, from my perspective, a southern treat. But you have to be careful about who's allergic to nuts. Yeah. You have to be thoughtful about who you send that to. So even something as simple as that, you need to be thoughtful about that. And so like I I like the having a couple of options.
2: Yeah, I think I like the options too, because I'll be honest, there've been some CPAs and financial planners in my past that sent like smoked turkeys or or large fish from <laughs> interest. I don't know. And it may have been great, but it just, I, you know, not exactly what we needed or used in that moment.
1: Well, I've gotten, yeah, I've gotten boxes of oranges. I've gotten frozen Kringles. I've sent pounds of bacon to oh. people though. So. Now
2: that one sounds good.
1: I was aware, you know, that they would like it. It was a very specific one.
2: So I don't know if this has helped anyone think about their holiday gift giving, but I guess, you know, give people some options. It's fun. And it still felt very personalized when I got to pick for what it's worth. I liked it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it absolutely did. Well, now we have Stephanie's conversation with Sherry.
3: I am Sherry Deutschman. I am the uh, founder and CEO of Brain Trust. A company dedicated to helping women grow million dollar businesses. But I'm a serial entrepreneur. I had another company that I started in my basement in 2002, grew it to 40 million in annual revenue and sold that back in 2016. Hey, Sherry, welcome to the show. That's just
2: amazing. You know, the idea of starting a business in your basement and growing it to 40 million dollars. And I think it's fair to say you would credit a lot of that success to how you put your employees first in that process. And so that's why I'm so excited to talk to you. And maybe just to kick us off, you started that company, you grew that company, you were the CEO of that company. What was a challenge in that role that you weren't expecting?
3: You know, I I link with empathy, and I think empathy is often an undervalued trait when it comes to the CEO role. But sometimes their you know, empathy was also crippling at times. So I think one of the biggest mistakes I made, especially in the early years, was holding on to people too long, which did a disservice to them and to the company. And mm-hmm. so I learned you know, to take my time in hiring. And then as soon as I realized that first doubt that this isn't going to work out to, to you know free up their, their future to go find a better place for them, which was ultimately better for the company.
2: I like that framing that you freed up for them, for them to follow on your path. Because we often, we don't think of firing people or letting people go in that way.
3: Yeah, there was a a time when I was firing a woman, you know, for some pretty egregious behavior. But as I was firing her, she said, if you terminate me, you are not the person you say you are. I said, "How, how so? And she said, well, you bill yourself as an employee first company, but firing me would would not be in sync with that. And so my response to her was, you no, know, we are a people first company. We're not a person first company. And your behavior, put yourself ahead of everybody else and endangered the livelihoods of all of us and say, you have to go. And so you know, I've learned to be a lot more discerning when it came to behaviors that could really derail the rest of the employees. Mm,
2: yeah, I love that. And to be fair, you wrote a book that we should talk about, which is called Lunch with Lucy. And I want to get into all what that means in just a minute. But in that book, you know, in a lot of the writings you've done, you've talked about what it means to lead a company with empathy. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about about what that looked like for you and and what it means to you that you lead with empathy.
3: For me, it meant being able to see the world through the lens of the employees. And to relieve them of some of the daily stresses and worries that they were faced with, things that would prevent them from really showing up fully at work and prevent them from being uh, really good at home, too. So, uh, for most employees, I didn't have to um, work too hard to find empathy. I had been a single mom, I had only a high school education, I had no money. In the early years, you know, I often went without electricity because my daughter and I couldn't afford daycare and the light bill. And so I had empathy for struggling single moms and for just everybody who's really trying to make ends meet. And so I just set out to create a company that took such good care of them and all their basic needs that when they were at work, they weren't worried about the light bill or whether or not they were going to have enough money to put gas in the car to get home or whether they could pay daycare so we made sure that all those basic needs were cared for first that was that was foundational to leading with empathy and then you know what I felt the frustration that I felt as an employee was not having a voice even though I believe that I was an ideal employee and yet didn't have a voice wasn't heard Uh, my opinions uh, didn't matter to leadership. And so I I created a culture where everybody was heard and really had a voice in our direction.
2: I love that. And a lot of your writings talk about the idea of fair wages. How did you come to decide that that was going to be a key component of running your business?
3: It had to be because our, our culture was one, you know, again, to put the needs of the employees first so that they could focus on taking care of the customer. But if you're not paid enough to cover the basic bills, then you know that wasn't going to work. And so the way we determined what was a fair living wage didn't evolve until maybe the company was um, eight or nine years old. And I heard of a, of, of a big national company using this scale, and it made so much sense that we incorporated it that day. And what they did and what we then adopted was looking at the two lowest paid employees in the company and imagining if those two people got married and on their joint salaries in what neighborhood could they afford to live? Mm. Could they buy a home? Could they afford to have children? And would those children be living in a safe neighborhood so they could go outside to play? Could they afford a real vacation? So those were you know, the factors that we considered when we created our starting minimum wage at the company Letter Logic. That was my first company. And at that time, um, it became obvious that in Nashville at that time it had to be $16 an hour was a starting pay for somebody to come in off the, the street and to start working in our factory. That really made it a lot of sense. And it, it made it possible for many of them. To For the first time, one woman said it was the first time in her entire life that she had been able to work just one job. Yeah, And ironically, what she was doing with her spare time, she was in her 50s now that she had enough money with this one job to not work the other jobs. What she was doing was then taking care of her grandchildren so her daughter could take a second job mm-hmm. uh, because she wasn't making enough money to cover the bare minimum.
2: Yeah. That story, I loved that story when I read it in the book, and that resonates for some of our listeners who have law firms, I suspect they might not have a lot of people paid at that minimum wage level. So I think maybe the harder part, and I'd love to get your take on this, is, but you still have, you know, administrative support. And so maybe they're not at a minimum wage level, but they're at a, you know, $30,000, $40,000 a year kind of wage level. So how does that philosophy, or how did you guys then use that philosophy when it came to kind of the next level of employee, you know, before you get up to your senior managers where you, people might be making more, you know, around a six-figure salary, right? Like, what do we do with those folks that they probably are making what would be called a living wage, but they might not be knocking it
3: out of the ballpark? You know, the word that comes to mind, it might be the wrong word in this, but we ameliorated the difference there by with our profit share plan, which was the single best idea I ever had in business, which uh, made it possible for each employee to make a lot of extra money every month. And I'd love to talk more about that, the profit sharing plan, because I think it was the best idea I ever had.
2: Yeah, I want you to talk more about it too, because I think it cuts through so many assumptions or, I don't know, ideas that people have about compensation. And so why don't I just let you just tee it up for us what did you do with your profit sharing plan for your business?
3: well the goal was to make sure that every employee felt valued regardless of their role and so you already have the disparity in salaries when you've got people who are you know highly educated highly trained coming in at 150 and two hundred thousand dollar salaries and then you've got people coming in without those assets coming in at 16 or 20 dollars an hour um, there was already the difference in pay. And so I wanted something that let everybody know that you are not more valuable or less valuable than anyone else. And I wanted to get them to be deeply engaged and to care about the bottom line. And so I created a profit share plan where once a month, I all of the employees together in a room, ever larger room every year, yeah. but uh, we have lunch catered in and then we shared the financials from the previous month with them. So we usually did it after the 15th of the month. So the books were closed. We shared the PL. So everybody could see exactly, you know, to the penny, how much money we brought in. And to the penny, what our net profit was for that month. And then we took 10% of the net profit, whatever it was, and we split it evenly. So that our janitor got exactly the same thing our CFO got. A couple of critical factors to the profit-sharing plan was that it was monthly.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Most profit-share plans are done as a percentage of your salary, and they're done annually or quarterly at best. And so they're not really tied to your behavior. But at Letter Logic, we discussed the financials for the previous month. It had only been the previous 30 days, and so we were able to talk about what had happened in that month that created the results. So when we had a really spectacularly profitable month, we knew why because we were all doing exactly what we were supposed to do. And then when we, you know, had uh, less than spectacular results, and we saw it there on the screen in front of us as we were sharing the financials, then we could talk about why, and we, you know, could usually point to like one big job that we screwed up and how that affected the bottom line, and um, it made everybody aware of their behavior, and the things that they could change to affect the bottom line. And then they wanted to affect the bottom line because they understood that they were responsible for it. So it was the monthly so that everybody could remember why it was evenly. And then it was the fact that it was a paper check. So it wasn't, didn't go in an automatic deposit like your regular paycheck did. It was a physical check. So I could look at a person in the eye and hand them a check and say, we did this. Yeah. This together. And um, you know, the checks, the very first one was seven dollars and it kept growing as the company got more and more profitable. And uh the last couple of profit share checks we did, and remember this is monthly, were over a thousand dollars. Wow. So that made a real impact on everyone, but especially those who were in their, you know, twenty dollar an hour jobs to every month to get that extra thousand bucks, then they could really start to you know, end some generational poverty and begin some generational wealth, which uh, started with, you know, buying a home. And we had a home, uh, first time homebuyers program where we helped everybody buy the first house too. So providing them critical tools to start building a financial healthy picture for their families.
2: Yeah. So I'm sure that lots of questions come up, but just to clarify, so, I mean, it could have been that one month people were getting $7 and the next month 200 it didn't matter it was whatever the profit was for that month so you could have those real honest conversations with your team about why are there fluctuations and and what was going on
3: that was our goal our goal wasn't simply to reward good results it was to create the good results by getting everybody invested and because we shared the financials so openly with the employees they could draw a direct line in their minds, connect the dots between their behavior and the results, and knew that they had culpability and responsibility for the bottom line. And it, so, it it got the engagement that we wanted. And it's even worse now. But in Nashville at the time, there were over a thousand open IT jobs, and there's probably five thousand now because Nashville's growing so quickly. But it enabled us to attract the cream of the crop, mm-hmm. even though everybody was trying to lure them away.
2: I would imagine it would also create this sense of team because everybody got an equal share. So whether, like you said, whether it was the janitor or, you know, high level CFO, they got the same amount. The check was just split evenly. And you actually talked about it in the terms of the the living wage of the woman who only got a one cent raise when you ended up increasing the minimum wage. But I would imagine that that same kind of Idea would be shared in this sense too, and that she was so happy not because she got a one cent raise, but because she saw her fellow team members get those raises and be able to make a, a living wage for the first time. And I suspect that this profit sharing did that same thing where we all win together, we all lose together. So now I have an incentive to help my fellow team member out if I see that they're struggling or how they can improve. And, and I'm just curious.
3: Did that play out in your day-to-day? Do you, did you see those changes with your team? Absolutely. Especially when it came to um, when we were trying to hire new people and we saw our team members being super careful about any referrals. Uh, talking the book about a, an employee who saw me interviewing his best friend. Our, our conference room was all glassed in and he walked through and he saw me talking with him. And afterwards, he ran to me and said, why were you talking to him? What was he here for? And I said, Um, He came to interview for a job and he said, do not hire him. He's going to be late. He's going to come in drunk on Mondays. He's terrible. And I said, I thought he was your best friend. And he said, he is. And he's a terrible employee. And so it made them only want to have people that they knew were going to pull their weight. And when we hired new people, it made them committed to helping those other people get up to speed quicker. We had people who had to be out for any reason. It made others not shy away from just jumping in to fill the gap. So it created a very cohesive team and caused them to have empathy for one another and one another's positions in life. Yeah. It is a a magical thing in a company.
2: No, I'm sure it is. But I'm curious, did it ever create problems like with a team member calling someone out if they weren't pulling their weight or or
3: doing their work? Absolutely, it did. And that wasn't causing a problem. That was helping us build a really uh, highly profitable, valuable business. Yeah. A byproduct of this was that, you know, we became known to be the the very best in the industry. And that enabled us to be the most expensive in the industry. Mm. Uh, Sales effort always started with me telling a prospective customer, I mean, looking them right in the eye and saying, I need for you to understand that I do not believe the customer comes first. My employees come first. And let me tell you what that looks like. And then I would tell them about all the benefits, which were, you know, a lot of things we haven't even discussed here this morning. And they got it. Yeah. You could see, you know, often the prospects would start shaking their heads and they say, Can we wanna work for you too? Or uh, you know, this is incredible. Or often, often saying, "Where do we sign?" We get it, and so it turned out to be a really critical part of our our sales growth and uh, being able to you know charge a premium and get a premium because we provided a premium service because we had the best of the best, fully engaged employees.
2: Yeah, and I'm sure some people's initial reaction is, "Gosh." You know, this costs money. Like you were just sharing ten percent of your profits, and what what did that do? But I, I mean, I th- I think, and you grew from it, right? Like at the end of the day, that was it was a good investment to make because happy employees make for happy clients, and your business grew. I mean, tremendously as a result of you guys making this shift.
3: Well, you just said it. You said an investment, and so some people, you know, criticized me. like, you're giving away, you know, ten percent. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not. Giving anything away, I'm investing in these people. Uh, looked at it as a, giving away ten percent of a pie, and all that did, you know, investing that ten percent into the employees made that pie way bigger. Mm-hmm. It's why we were on the Inc. Five Thousand list for ten straight years, even though we were the most expensive in the nation. It was that investment, and um, you know, there's a, lots of studies done about the, the cost of lack of employee engagement. I think the last gala poll said that you know, 70% of our employees are disengaged yeah. and that 50% of them are actively looking for a job right now at your at the desk that you're paying for and the phone that you're paying for. They're actually looking for jobs. And, so, and there's tremendous cost to you know, attrition within a company. And we were able to uh, have tremendous employee engagement and loyalty because of not just the profit share, because I think that was, that was really the icing on the cake. It wasn't the, the cake.
2: Yeah. I mean, well, it was this whole philosophy that you built. And I guess just one last question, because you talk about this in the book and I, and honestly, when I was sharing this with my husband, this was his first thought too. So I'm sure you've heard it a lot is this idea of salespeople getting commissions and should they really you know be paid differently or share in this same kind of pot? that piece of the pie is everybody else. And before you answer that objection, I want to just frame this for our for our listeners, because I think sometimes we say it would be easy for you to hear my question right now and think, oh, Stephanie, I don't have salespeople in my firm. But yes, you do. Because law firms traditionally have this model where they pay the rainmaker, you know, the person who's originates or responsible for the business significantly more for doing that. And I'm just kind of curious how you approached it differently and what you saw as a result and why why you fight back and, and argue that that's not the way people should do it.
3: Well, I think salespeople are the lifeblood of a company. And if they're not selling, nobody is eating. So um, I was very generous with our salespeople. They had very low salaries, but they had huge commission opportunities and recurring uh, commission too. So if they sold an account now and we still have that account 10 years, they'd still be getting the same monthly commission. So it was a good commission structure. But I wanted them to fully participate in what they brought to the table for everyone else. And I wanted them to be really mindful of selling the right account at the right price and being seen as part of the team and not as outsiders. And so I, every time I brought in someone new in the in the leadership team or they would argue that salespeople should not be receiving the same profit share because of their commission. But I fought for it. Even the salespeople got great granularity when it came to the financials. So I would even allow them to come into my office and you know, pull up a chair right next to me and get right into NetSuite and see to the penny all of our costs, print out anything that they wanted so they were better informed so they could. Sell the right service at the right price. Yeah. And then be richly rewarded for it and to be rewarded along with everyone else. And that contributed to an atmosphere of nobody resented the salespeople. They knew they were making more money than everybody else, a lot more money than everybody else, but they never resented them uh, as they were sitting there alongside us. You know, they might be making half million dollars a year, but they were right there with us, grateful for that extra $700 profit share check.
2: Yeah. And you talk about how. It was important to make sure that the clients they were bringing in, that the work they were selling was the right work and in line with the global, you know, strategy of the entire business. And I think it's a good point. Like salespeople, sometimes if we don't incentivize them the right way, if their only incentive is just to sell, they could bring bad clients to the firm and then we're kind of stuck with them. And and that's not the goal either. But you were trying to create something a little bit more holistic for your sales team, which I really appreciated. Thank you. So, we need to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. But when we come back, I need to cover what Lunch with Lucy is because, I mean, there's just, just so much to cover. So, we'll be right back.
1: Support for today's episode comes from Text Expander. Minimize effort, maximize productivity with Text Expander. Text Expander helps you work faster and smarter so you can focus your time on your most important work. Drive faster results in three steps one, create. Make snippets of text for support responses, sales outreach, or even common emails to save them in Text Expander. 2. Trigger Just type a few characters and watch the snippet automatically expand your text. You can add fill in the blank or more complex functionality to customize your message. 3. Share. Share snippets across your organization. Your team can customize and insert the text in any app on Mac, Windows, Chrome, or iOS with a few keystrokes. Are you a startup looking to scale? Text Expander is here to help you on your journey. Check out Text Expander for Startups, a program that's specifically designed to help startup teams communicate more consistently, accurately, and efficiently. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit Textexpander.com forward slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. Support for today's episode comes from rankings.io. Helping hyper-competitive personal injury attorneys dominate first-page rankings through search engine optimization to become better recognized as the leading law firm in your metro. Rankings is solely focused on SEO for personal injury law firms. You'll work with an entire team of SEO specialists dedicated to helping clients dominate search results with unparalleled industry expertise. Rankings focuses on proof, not promises, by delivering results and never leaving their clients in the dark. You will receive monthly reports that give a full snapshot of where you stand as you watch your firm climb to the first page of Google and generate high-value leads. Most importantly, you'll be one of an elite few. Rankings' unrelenting conviction to be the best drives them to do everything to ensure the personal injury law firms working with them are dominating the search results. To see if you're a fit, visit rankings.io forward slash lawyerist to get started. Today's podcast is brought to you by Latera. Delivering high-quality work on time and on budget is what matters most to your clients. Latera helps law firms maximize client retention rates, increase profit margins, and enhance lawyer happiness. In short, they simplify complex workflows by connecting legal teams to the data they need every day. The result? End-user happiness. Most of the world's largest law firms, boutique firms, and corporate legal departments trust Latera to help their legal teams manage all of their documents, deals, cases, and data. Are you ready to join them? Latera is excited to hear about the challenges facing your organization, show you their software in action, or simply discuss whatever else might be top of mind. Get a demo with their document experts today by visiting latera.com forward slash lawyerist. All
2: right, so we're back and talked about leading with empathy. And obviously a huge part of that in your company was the idea of fair wages and the profit sharing. I think the third leg of the stool you talked about was, was having that voice and really getting to know your team members. And you were able to do that through something that you called Lunch with Lucy. So I'd love for you just to share with us, what is Lunch with Lucy and, and how did that get started?
3: Lunch with Lucy was a practice that I created where on every Wednesday for lunch. I wasn't Sherry, the CEO. I was just Lucy, a coworker. And anybody that wanted to could sign up to have lunch with Lucy. And um, I chose, you know, being just Lucy, so that it wasn't intimidating. It was, you know, just more a coworker. And they chose the restaurant. They chose who else would be with us at the table. So sometimes it was, um, you know, just the two of us. In fact, most often it was just the two of us. But sometimes it was. Somebody they were dating. Uh, Sometimes they brought their parents. Sometimes they brought their children. Sometimes they brought their whole department because they wanted to gang up on me about, you know, policy change they were seeking. The important part of the lunch with them was that it gave me an opportunity to get to know them and to listen to them. And I learned about the challenges that they faced in their households before they even came into work and sometimes really bad living circumstances. I learned too much about their love lives. Uh, I learned, you know, about their hopes and dreams and uh, what they really aspired to be doing while they were actually working on my factory floor. And that was really surprising. And we had a couple killer musicians working for us and a woman who just longed to be a school teacher. So I was able to hear what they wanted out of life and to learn from them what I could do to help them achieve that. But I also learned about things that were going on in the company that I would not have known otherwise. And that was really valuable to hear from them firsthand about equipment that wasn't working properly or a coworker that wasn't pulling their weight or, you know, a policy change that needed to be made. And I listened. And, um, you know, I did other things to provide an outlet for employees to be heard, but that was the most popular. So I sold the company five years ago, and the employees still call me Lucy, and they still have lunch with Lucy. So on Friday, I'm having breakfast with a former employee and lunch with a former employee, and we're all really still close and tight, and they all call me Lucy. It just became Lucy because I like alliteration and the company was Letter Logic and it was lunch and Lucy, and it just seemed like the right thing to do.
2: No, I love that. And I love how intentionally you approached these lunches, like letting them pick the restaurant and also like you sat in the non-dominant seat right like most people like to see sit with their back facing a wall so they can look out and you were very intentional of like i'm not going to pick that spot i want all of my focus to be on this employee you know this team member so that you could really get to know them and listen to them it sounds so simple but so powerful right i'm sure it just reverberated throughout the company and obviously it's still going on today do they complain to you? And now when you when you get to see them, I'm, is it just fun? Or are they still like, oh, they're, this is what's going on at the company? I bet they're still just so invested.
3: Well, most of them, you know, I sold the company in 2016, and more than, than I, you know, I'm trying to do percentages in my head, 80% of them left uh, um, you know, because the culture changed dramatically. And um, they left. I ran into one employee over the weekend. And he just grabbed my hand and held it. And he said, I just wish I was still working with you. I just wish I still was. And, you know, I miss those days, too. It's a really special thing.
2: Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I think it's a testament to the relationships that you still have with these folks. And and even you talk about well, there would be times where they got a new job and you celebrated that. And we talk about that at Lawyerist a lot. You know, we ask all of our employees every quarter, what do they want to do after they work at Lawyerist, which in the beginning surprises our team members because they're like, why are you asking me about my next job? And I'm like, well, you know, let's face reality. You're probably not going to be here forever. So let's make sure we make this mutually beneficial for the time that you're here and get you the skills you need to do to do that next thing. And it sounded like you took a similar approach with your team so that when people did come and were leaving you to go on to another job. You were excited for them and you celebrated that. And I'm sure that that also is an awesome thing that you were doing.
3: You know, we gave parties for them to send them off uh, into their new venture. And many employees, I had to sit and coach them and say, you should not be here. You can do so much more than run this piece of equipment. And I need for you to move on. I love you and you're great for the company, but this is not right for you to be running this machine. I think about an employee, Rob, who was my favorite, and um, I probably told him twenty times, "You need to move on." And he was using our job as a stepping stone because he was trying to learn Russian. He worked with children, went to work in Ukraine every year to help orphans there, and he said, "I'm learning Russian while I'm I'm working, and I can do this mindless job by doing this." And so I said, "Well, as soon as you've got that, I want you gone." And so he um, started his own business after that and is doing really well. And actually, I'm one of his clients. And I think it is the job of employers to set every single employee up for success, whether it's with that company or a long-term view. And I'm mindful that here in my new company, as I've hired people in, I've elevated their pay and their titles to what sets them up for their next days. When they leave here, I want them to be making really good money. And a part of that is your pay history. Yeah, I keep coming back to
2: it's simple, but it's smart, right? And so I think the steps that you took were the right ones. And it's always great to kind of hear them again and be remembered. And what you did with the profit distribution. I mean, I shared this with you before we hit record, but I was reading you're writing right at the time where I was evaluating how Lawyers is going to do our profit share next year. And it got me thinking and made me make some decisions. And now we're going to change it up and follow what you were doing. I'm super excited about it. We were doing something very similar, but it was just a little bit different. And some of the points that you've made in the book just really hit home for me. And then now my husband's looking at it and he was he got all excited. <laughs> he was like, I need to look at this. I need to read this book for his team and his company. I'm so excited that you came on to share this because this is something we've been preaching for a while and you're like living proof that it works.
3: Well, I I stepped in to help a family member's company a couple of years ago. The company had lost money three years in a row. Um, It had been a million dollar company that was just really suffering. When I got involved, we raised everybody's pay, uh, which seems counterproductive when you're losing money. But we raised everybody's pay and we put the profit share plan in place. And that company uh, has been profitable since then with ever-growing profits. And this year, they doubled revenue over last year. With the same employees, the same business, it was just that deep engagement and having employees feel heard and appreciated. Absolutely. I love it.
2: The book is Lunch with Lucy. I recommend it to everyone. Thank you so much for being with me today. We have learned a lot. And this has just been great.
3: Thank you. It was just a joy to be with you, Stephanie.
0: The Lawyerist Podcast is produced by Bailey Tiller and edited by Ryan Croft. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discussed here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com slash community slash lab to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and not endorsed by the Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.